The theme that we're going to be dialing into this morning is the matter of a gospel playbook. What does it mean that Christ calls us through this text to be armed with Christ-likeness? And what are we to do individually and also in our city, and for that matter, around the world, to let the gospel do its work in us and through us? Soon after we completed this facility and a large expansion, we moved to retire our debt as, po- as fast as possible. And after we completed that, our pastors and elders began thinking really carefully and intentionally about why is our church in this city? For years, we had a great emphasis on global evangelism, reaching unreached people groups. For years, we had a focus on urban outreach in terms of reaching into the inner city of the area of Brookside, trying to build bridges of grace that could bear the weight of truth. But we began to ask ourselves, so how does our church really reach the suburbs, and and how do we do that through all of you? That started with the Next Door Mission, which was our vision to launch campuses that would then become self-governing churches. The aim was to multiply ourselves, to create healthy churches, while at the same time mobilizing us as a congregation. And that strategy over the last couple of years has worked marvelously. This last, or two Sundays ago at Easter, between the three campuses here at North Indy, Fishers, and at Castleton, in Good Friday and Easter Sunday, we had a total of 8,300 people between all three campuses. It's an amazing stewardship. Uh, Fishers, after two and a half years or so, they ran 600 on Easter Sunday morning, and Castleton, that just started recently, was at 160. I mean, numbers don't say anything, but you need to know that Indianapolis is a difficult arena to start and plant new churches. That's been proven historically over the last number of years. And our vision is to see what can we do to help create healthy, gospel-centered churches in our city, and then also to to mobilize us as a church so that we don't develop a a cruise ship mindset when God's called us to have a, a battleship mindset. As we've seen the Lord's blessing in the Next Door Mission, we're starting to ask ourselves some other questions. Questions like, what can we do to serve our city even better? What can we do to serve the suburbs even more effectively? How can we help you reach your neighbors? What are the needs in the lives of the people within whom we live in close proximity, and how can we help them? Is there a way for us to build bridges of grace that can bear the weight of truth in the suburbs like we've done in Brookside? And as we, as we listen to the groan of our culture, as we hear the lament that comes from the city of Indianapolis and its suburbs, what do we do to offer the city hope? So the question that we're wrestling with, and it relates to 1 Peter 4, is what is the Lord's playbook for our church? Why has he led us together? And where does he want us to go? I want you to know that our elders and pastors feel led, compelled, to begin to craft a two to three year vision for what's next for our church, trying to answer the critical question, what is our vision for outreach in the city of Indianapolis? This strategic plan is going to help us to think through the Lord's direction in our lives as it relates to global and urban and local outreach. There's so many things that are running through my mind and heart, so many burdens that I have. For for instance, is there a way for us to take the pastoral residency program and to double it or even triple it to see young men deployed to ministry? Could we launch another campus within the next two years? What about church planting? Not just campusing, but church planting in other areas of our city where we don't have as many college parkers, but there's a great need. 
How can we send more people to the mission field? How can we take men and women with business skills and see them use those in hard-to-reach places? Can more people of our church move into the Brookside neighborhood? What can we do to help hurting churches in the city? And is there anything that we can do to help stem the flood, the tide of an opioid addiction that is ravaging the northern suburbs? Like, these are the problems within our city and within the suburbs, and the question is, what do we do? What's the playbook? What has God called us to be as a church in this moment? So part of the way that we're going to discern the Lord's will is not just to have our elders and pastors decide that and hand that to you. We want to hear from you. Part of the beauty of being a congregationally uh, ruled and governed church is that we, we believe God speaks through the people. And so in the next few days, you're going to be receiving an email with a, a short little survey. And here's what we want you to do. We want you to think and pray about what you see in the city, what you see in your neighborhoods, what you see in the suburbs, and to ask yourself, what could my church perhaps do to be able to meet that need? Is there something that we need to be thinking about? And then our hope is to put that together and then present that to you in a two to three year plan and say, this is what we believe God's playbook is for us as a church. The text this morning in 1 Peter chapter four speaks into this playbook. Like what are believers supposed to do? What are you supposed to do tomorrow? What are you supposed to do in about 35 minutes when you're dismissed and you have opportunity to engage with one another? Last week, Joe helped us by walking through a, a really complicated text, and we saw the beauty of the gospel. We saw it in verse 18. If you're here today and you don't know what the gospel is, listen carefully, because verse 18 describes it very succinctly. It says this, Christ suffered once for sins. So the gospel is that Jesus suffers because of sin. And he says this, the righteous for the unrighteous, meaning Jesus is righteous and we're not. He suffers for us, for what purpose? That he might bring us to God. That's the whole purpose. That's the gospel right there. It is that Jesus was righteous and we are not. It's that God takes our sin and puts it on Christ so that we can receive Christ's righteousness. And the end is that we might be reconciled to our creator God. We might be reconciled to a holy God. God is holy, we are not, that's the problem, and Jesus came to solve that. And our hope and prayer is that you might come to receive Christ, if he's not your savior today, that you might come to see the beautiful reality of this gospel, and then if you know this gospel and you're a follower of Jesus, that you would be inclined to let that gospel do its work in your life, for that gospel to do its work in our church, for that gospel to do its work in our city. So this morning I want to take three key words that I think could summarize the sum total of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Think of these as three pegs, if you will, that I'm going to hang 1 Peter 4, verses 1 through 11 on. And those three words are think, stop, and do. The Christian life is probably much more than that, but at a minimum it involves a particular kind of thinking. It involves things that we stopped doing, that we've repented from and things that we are committed to doing. And this helps us to understand what is God's playbook for us as a church. Let's look at these words. First, think. The question is, how does the gospel shape our thinking? What sort of attitudes and perspectives should shape our lives? What's the, the lens through which we should see the city and see the needs around us? How should we think about our church and its role? Verse 1 begins with the word since. That's an important word because it links what was said previously 
to what is said now. Chapter 3 ended with a statement about the ascension of Jesus. Verse 22 says that who has gone into heaven, that's Jesus, he's gone into heaven, is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities and powers having been subjected to him. Essentially what Peter is talking about in this moment, in verse 22, is the ascension of Jesus, the moment after his resurrection, when his body was glorified, and he was physically moved from the earth into the heavenly realm. And the Bible tells us that from this position of ascension, he has inaugurated his rule and reign. And yet not all of his enemies have yet been subjected to his rule. One of the favorite Old Testament passages that the writers of the New Testament quote about this ascension is Psalm 110, particularly verse 1, which says, The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So the idea in a pretty graphic image is of the exalted Christ so victorious over his enemies that he props his feet up on Caiaphas, on Nero, on Pilate, and on the devil himself. The idea is that this resurrected Christ is victorious. However, Peter's point in raising this ascension of Jesus, this theological and positional reality, is not just to identify that Jesus has been victorious. That's part of the reason. But the main reason is ordered to connect Jesus' ascension and his victory with the path that got him there. And that's the thinking that Peter wants to inform the gospel playbook in terms of how we live. In other words, the reason that Jesus moves into the ascension and the path through which he goes is a path of suffering. That's fundamental to Christianity is this understanding that the way of exaltation is through humiliation. That the way of honor is through a willingness to suffer. That suffering is the pathway to victory and exaltation. Now, that's really important to remember, especially if you're here today and you barely got yourself to church. No, I don't mean physically, I mean emotionally. Like you got up and thought, I don't know if I can sing. I don't know if the, the realities of what I'm gonna hear are gonna help my soul today. So if you've come today exhausted and weary, I just want you to know we're glad that you're here. In fact, that's where most of us are most of our lives. In fact, if you're here today and everything's going well and you just, everything's sunny and bright and everything, you're just killing it in life, would you just please avoid all of us today? We're grateful you're here, but brother or sister, that's not the normal experience. In fact, church needs to be a place where it's just straight up okay to not be okay. Be able to come and say, life is hard, but God is good. Be able to say, hard is hard, but hard is not bad. Throughout the New Testament, we see evidences of this mindset. Philippians 2, have this mind in yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus who although he was in the form of God, thought it not robbery with God to be equal with God, but emptied himself. Text goes on to say that at the name of Jesus, every knee would bow, every tongue would confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord. Or Hebrews chapter 12 that says, let us, let us run the race that's set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. There it is, joy and endurance despising the shame. He's seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And then the writer of Hebrews says this, consider him, think about him, think about how he lived so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. 
You see, one of the aims of being together today is for us to remind one another to consider him, consider him, to see the the pathway in which Jesus walked. So the text begins with this word, since. Since, therefore, Christ suffered in the flesh, he then says, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. That's an interesting phrase to use, isn't it? Arm yourselves? I mean, Peter could have said something differently. He could have said something like, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, follow his example. Or since Christ has suffered, imitate him. But no, Peter uses a word that that identifies a kind of battle context to it. Christian exiles are to take up the example of Christ and not just follow him, they are to arm themselves. Because the reality is they're in a battle. Do you feel that battle today? Some of you, even as you're singing this morning, you're, you're having to battle thoughts, thoughts of despair, thoughts of discouragement, thoughts of wondering, is my faith going to hold? Thoughts of, there's things in my life I don't want to be in my life, and how come I can't get rid of these things anymore? And what happens is we gather in corporate worship through the hearing of God's word, through the singing of songs, we are encouraged by those words to rearm our minds to be reaffirmed in what we believe, because all week long we have been allured by false glories. And it's good to be reminded in this room, in this moment, what's truly valuable. And in so doing, we, we arm our thoughts, we, we have mindsets that are formed because of the word and because of our time together. Being armed means that we, we receive God's word, we we use the scriptures, we, we have those deposits that are put into our minds and our hearts. If you're a, a child or a teenager and your parents brought you here, you ought to be thankful that you have Christian parents that are trying to push God's word into your soul. You ought to be thankful that your mom and dad pray over you or that they open the Bible and I'm sure there's some times that you don't appreciate all of their efforts and don't even see all the value of it. But I'm here to tell you that all of those things begin to get in your soul. And when you get into your later teenage years or into college or into your 20s and something comes across your path, you're going to be able to go, you know what, I don't think that's right. I don't know why, but that doesn't fit with what this thing that's been pushed into my soul is. You have a mindset that's been formed, sometimes not even willingly. So even if you don't believe everything that your parents believe yet, you ought to be thankful that at least they're trying to arm you with the right kind of mindset and the right kind of thinking. And that means if you're a parent trying to do that, don't give up. You keep making deposits into your children's lives. You have them together with you in corporate worship so your children can, can hear the word and have them involved in a children's ministry so that they're, they're hearing the word in an age-oriented sort of context. The point is, is that over and over, we're, we're making deposits, we're putting God's word into our heart, we're using fighter verses, words that come straight from the scriptures in order to help us do battle. It involves making investments in the soul so that when that moment comes, all of that training suddenly is incredibly useful. You know, generals of armed forces know this, continual training. Police officers, firemen know this. Coaches know this. You practice over and over and over and over, little drills, little things, because there's this one little sliver of time when all of that matters. Makes me think of a particular moment this last March. I was at a basketball tournament 
my son Jeremiah was playing, and there was another game that was going on at the same time. I didn't actually attend the game or see it, but I heard of it. It lives in infamy in the Warrior Basketball Hall of Fame. Well, actually, I brought along a video to show you, so let's, let's roll the clip, and I'll set it up. So what happens... Okay, right here. So the black team is the Northwest Warriors. Number 35 is Matthew Brown. The Warriors were behind by three points. The coaches said, shoot a three-pointer, shoot a three-pointer, but the boy didn't shoot a three-pointer, shot a two-pointer, so they're down one. In a moment, you're gonna see the ball go out of bounds, and the guy underneath the basket's gonna try and chuck it down the court to try and run the clock out. But Matthew has been trained that when that happens, he runs back to the backside of the court and he's practiced something over and over and over, and you're gonna see what happens. You ready? Roll the tape. Watch him. Silence. Boom. Okay. Now watch for crazy dads. Ready? Here they are. Wait, wait, wait for it, wait for it. There he is, there he is, there he is. All right, good, right? So, the point of that is so you'll never forget First Peter 4 ever again, right? So the, the idea is this, that, that Matthew Brown shot half-court shots over and over and over, almost to the point ad nauseum with his coaches that they're like, forget it, da 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 And then one day, that particular thing locks in, and there is that particular moment. And what you need to know is this sermon and other things that we talk about are all building the framework and the fabric in your soul because there's gonna be something, maybe tomorrow, maybe next week, maybe a year from now, that you're gonna need to be reminded of how do you think in a Christ-like way. Since Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, and then he says this, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Now that doesn't mean that you never sin again, but what it means is that you're no longer under sin's dominion. And that suffering gives clear evidence that your king is Christ and that you've made a break from sin. You could do that, but you're choosing not to because the next phrase in verse 2 tells us why. So as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. Essentially what happens is that to have the mindset of Christ, to be armed with Christ-like thinking and an attitude means that you're now committed to doing God's will. So if you're a follower of Jesus, this is very fundamental, but you need to remind yourself of this. You're on earth now to no longer do your own will. You're on earth to do God's will. I mean, Jesus himself in the Garden of Gethsemane is suffering under the weight of what God has called him to do, and he says, Lord, let this, Father, let this cup pass from me. But then what does he say? He says, not my will, but your will be done. You see, God's will is now what defines the believer's life. This gospel playbook means that God has a will for us. He has an intention. He has an intention for our church in this city. He has an intention for you. You must ask yourself, why has God placed you here in this city in this moment? Why are you in your neighborhood in the place of employment? Why, why God has put you together if you're married with your spouse and your unique combination of gifts? And why are you assembled in this church in this moment in church history? How you live in an exile begins with how do you think? What is your attitude? And how does that relate to God's will? So can I ask you just a few pastoral questions? For instance, what is your attitude like this morning? Do you have the mind of Christ? Do you, are you embracing what it means to 
be a follower of Jesus? Do you love God's will? Or this morning, if you're honest enough to say, you know, it's been not a great week. I have followed my own will and not the Lord's. Are you making regular deposits of the word in your life? This morning, you may have had to search around the house to find your Bible. It's embarrassing, isn't it, when you have to ask your kids or your spouse, hey, has anybody seen my Bible? Because the reality is you ought to have seen it. So are you making deposits as you gather together in corporate worship? Is your attitude such that you're pointing your heart towards the Lord? Are you able to, to engage in worship? And, and even if you're not in that particular moment in the song, or even if you don't particularly like that song, that you can still point your heart God's direction and say, I need this moment to reset my thinking. And is that happening even this morning? The gospel playbook involves thinking like Jesus. It involves helping others to think like Jesus. That's the first thing, to think. Here's the second thing. This gospel playbook involves things that we need to stop. It involves particular actions that we simply need to turn from or to repent of. To repent, after all, means to change the mind. It means that I'm no longer going to do one thing, but instead I'm going to do another. Look at verse 3. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. Now, I love my ESV translation, but that's a clunky way to say something. In fact, the NIV, I think, renders it in a way that's more helpful. Here's how they render it. For you have already spent enough time doing what pagans choose to do. Ah, that's helpful. You've already spent enough time doing what pagans choose to do. What, what Peter is doing is trying to motivate them to make a break from their past lives, to remind them about how much time and energy they wasted in the past with living that is now regrettable. The text invites us to look back, regardless how colorful your past was, and to be reminded that there were a lot of things in our past that was just a waste. All of us have regrets. And so part of the motivation of not going back to these former sins is to be reminded what a waste they were. Sort of that you could look at your past through a lens and then see the sins that are tempting you and say in effect to those sins, been there, done that, not good, got the trophy, don't want it. Peter is saying, look, don't go back to the old you. You live for the will of God now, not for human passion. So part of the characteristic or the playbook for the people of God, part of the playbook for our church in this city, is to be a community of people who are unique and different than the world. That there's to be a righteousness that marks us. Not just when we gather on Sundays, but when you go out into the marketplace. You need to know that your righteousness matters for the sake of the name and reputation of this church. I meet somebody and you work with and I introduce them as myself as the pastor of College Park Church and they know that you are a member here, they ought not to say to me, really? I know a guy who goes to your church and what's going on there? That guy just lives like everybody else. That ought not to be said of you. And if it is, I'll call you. <laughs> and ask you, brother or sister, what are you doing? What's happening? Because this is important. This is not just about you. This is about the overall mis ministry of the gospel, the overall message of the gospel in the community. Now, just to be sure that Peter's clear, he makes it even more poignant by giving a sin list. 
This often happens throughout the New Testament where lists are given, not meant to be all-encompassing, but to make it really sharp and clear, lest we sort of say, oh yeah, sure, there's things that we shouldn't do. No, Peter puts it into very practical terms in order to make it very evident what we ought to repent from. And what's interesting is the connection that Peter makes between sexuality, drunkenness, and social ostracism. The idea is that there was a presence, no doubt, of both alcohol and the presence of sexuality, and those went together. And whenever people were like, you know what, we're not going to go there, we're not going to be involved in this, it created a very difficult and awkward social pressure. And some of you know what that is. You feel that even now. Some of you felt that very specifically in your college days. Or maybe it is something you feel even now with people that you work with. So he gives a list, and he lists things like Sensuality, it means unrestrained behavior, unrestrained attitudes about sexuality, just like, hey, everything goes. Passions, the next word, means lustful, evil cravings. Drunkenness, this is obvious, it's the excessive use of alcohol. And then he talks about orgies and drinking parties. Here's where we see the social dynamic, where we have this kind of group gathering where immorality and the out-of-control consumption of alcohol are so present that there's just something really wrong about this gathering. Or one particular Greek dictionary defined this word, or these words, as binge parties. Some of you know exactly what that is. You've, you remember those seasons. You were maybe in those seasons. Or in college, you walked away from those seasons. And, and then he gives a sort of a laundry list term of lawless idolatry. This is sort of a summary concept for the orientation of these gatherings. Now, in context, what probably is happening here is that there are some sort of festivals and gatherings that everyone in the city would, would gather and be a part of. Think of it like a Fourth of July celebration, and part of these celebrations involved just way too much consumption of alcohol, and there was all sorts of immorality that was going on. Think of it, for instance, like Mardi Gras. And as a result, these Christians were not getting involved with this kind of immoral behavior. Perhaps they were walking away from it or maybe not even going at all. And verse four says, with respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. Oh, you've seen this. You decide, hey, I'm not gonna do that, I'm not gonna be here, I'm not gonna be involved in this. And the guys in your fraternity were like, what in the world? Like, who are you? Like, you're a 21st century Puritan, holy roller, you're worried about your mom, you have all these sort of maligning things that are said to you, this kind of social pressure. Like, who do you think you are? I think you're better than me? I think you're better? Because suddenly now there's this, this guilt that comes because someone's not doing what you're doing. Are you judging me? Some of you know exactly what that's like, this pressure that suddenly now happens. Some of you are in high school and you... You feel this almost every single day, the dirty joke that's said and you don't laugh, or a particular thing on social media that you refuse to, to repost, or even in terms of what you decide you're going to use, or what apps you use, and people look at you like you're, like you're Amish or something. Like, don't you know this is 2017, and it, it's hard when you feel ostracized. My goodness, as a parent, I feel this all the time. Kids are in environments it's difficult to navigate through, and, and, and they feel the pressure. I feel the pressure to conform, and that ostracism is painful. 
When I think of the painfulness of that, it just brings me all the way back to high school days. And I think of one moment, I think I was a junior, maybe a senior, I don't remember what it was, but our basketball team was away at some sort of tournament and we were by ourselves and we were in this like dorm room setting and one of the guys on our team got this idea that he'd go out and rent a VCR and he said, hey, I'm gonna go out and get some porn videos. I was like, are you kidding me? Sure enough, he did, and that was back in the day when you had to actually go to a store and rent a VCR and get the videos and everything else, let alone now on a device. And I'll never forget, I'm in the dorm room, he comes in with his stuff and starts setting it up, and I'm like, see you guys, I'm out of here. And I remember what they said as I'm walking out the door. This is at a Christian school, maligning me. Remember, I go back to my little dorm room, close the door, I sit on the edge of my bed, and I remember this feeling like I'd never felt as alone in my entire life. I was emotional, I was afraid. I was like, what's tomorrow gonna be like? What are they gonna say? Like, this is just awful. And I'm there all by myself. 11 or 12 teammates, and I'm the only guy that walks out. And all of a sudden, knock at the door, guy comes in, he's like, man, can I hang out with you here? Because that's not my thing. Like, Come on, man, sit down. I'm like, yes, got somebody with me, right? <laughs> and about 10 minutes later, another doc, guy comes in, and it's the three of us, and that's it. And I remember the feeling of what it was like to be ostracized and maligned. And some of you know exactly what that is all about. You need to know, brothers and sisters, that's God's playbook. And if you're not okay with that playbook every once in a while, then you gotta understand, like the gospel requires that there are moments when you gotta go there and you gotta say, I am not doing this in love and in kindness to you. No offense, I'm not judging you, but this is not my thing. I serve Christ, I can't go here. Verses five and six, there's an encouragement here to us and to remind us that there is, there's coming a day of judgment. Verse five says, but they will have to give an account to him who was ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh, the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. And this is a complicated text to tell you what it essentially means, that the gospel was preached to people who then passed away in order so that they would be raised to life again in the spirit as God does. And Peter's point is this, the whole purpose of the gospel is to give you life, both in the future and even now. You know, it used to be back in the day when I was in probably high school or so, there was a lot of talk about the church being separate from the world. And that got overplayed. I mean, the church was so separate that we, it was like, keep people out. And then somewhere around college, like the whole thing flipped and it went the other direction and we got involved in, let's get engaged in culture and get inside and redeem it from the inside out and sort of be like everyone else and then also be Christian, but also we'll be in the culture. And so either ends of the perspective, I don't know what your background has been or kind of where you're coming to this particular Sunday, but could I just suggest to you that there's elements of truth in both of those? But brothers and sisters, there needs to be things that we repent of and we turn from and ought not to be afraid to lovingly and kindly say, I'm sorry, but I, don't, I can't do this. God saved me from this. This is, my over, this is my past life. Been there, done that, got the participation award. I'm not going there again. And on the other hand, to know when it's appropriate for us to engage and to be a part of the culture, but also realizing that part of the aim is to create an exiled culture, a group of people who are markedly different. So let me just ask you, are you okay with being different? Christianity, by definition, is weird. I'm not asking you to be weird, but I'm saying that what you believe 
at times creates a line in the sand that's difficult. Are you, are you messing around with things that you, used to, that you walked away from? Or maybe your heart's kind of gravitating back to them. Can I just remind you, God saved you from some stuff, and that stuff needs to be continually turned away from. And when it comes to being clear with people that you're different, are you okay that every once in a while you're just not gonna feel part of the in crowd? You might not get invited to the restaurant dinner. You might not get invited to hang out. Reality is, is there may be moments when you feel rather ostracized and you need to know you join the ranks of millions of believers who that has been and frankly probably should have been for even more their experience as an exile. So there are things that we are called to think. There are things that we are called to stop. And then finally, there are things that we're called to do. So the final thing that Peter identifies here, beginning in verse 7, is that gospel living, this playbook, involves creating a unique culture within the church. So not only do we need to think rightly about the pathway of suffering, not only do we need to think rightly about the sin that is inside of us and in the world, but we also need to think rightly about what kind of culture do we create within the context of the church. Verse seven says, the end of all things is at hand, therefore be self-controlled and sober-minded. These are really probably synonyms that sort of just go together that essentially say, look, this is not a time for lazy thinking. Dads, don't curse your children with a passive father. Your kids need to know and know how to think and, and how to respond to the culture in which they live. There needs to be questions that are asked and, and, and realities that are pressed into. Don't, don't simply hope that somehow they figure out how to navigate their world through a tricky culture. We need moms and dads, we need uncles, aunts, we need grandmas and grandpas, we need friends who can just come alongside and realize, you know what, th th we live in serious times. There's significant things that are on the line, and we need to be committed to not living aimlessly or foolishly. He says, be sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. He connects it to prayer here because when you understand the reality of what you're dealing with, it creates a sense of desperation and this sense of, man, we gotta pray. The, the reality of what's happening out in the world is, is, is scary, and there's even stuff within my soul that is scary, so we gotta seek the Lord. And then there's even more. Verse eight, above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. The idea is that the church is to be marked by a gospel-centered love where our affections for one another are so strong and we know one another well enough that when petty differences or little slights happen that we can cover those things in love. We can be able to love people more than we hate where they're at. I mean, this should happen in the context of a marriage, shouldn't it? Because of my love for Sarah, because of my love for my children, I can tolerate their little things that they do that would annoy me. If you did them and I didn't know you as well, they might annoy me even more. And it would be harder for me to cover your issues than it would be theirs because I love them more. And some of you, you get sideways about things in church because you don't know anybody. You come here and it's all about you and whether your tastes are met or your particular programming exactly where you want. And, and, and the little news flash is, is that church isn't entirely about you. And the thing is, is the more that you get to know other people and love them and pour into their life, it's strange how much better your church becomes. And the fact of the matter didn't change at all, but your perspective changed because you could eclipse the little differences with the concept of love. There's all sorts of disagreements and challenges and fighting that happens outside the church. What Peter envisions is that this becomes an island where people love one another. You're going to have a chance to practice this in just a few moments when you go out in the atrium to be able to love and care for each other. 
Rather than just keeping your head down, let's get in the car, get the lunch, get on, get the nap, et cetera, et cetera. Let's go, let's go, let's go. And you want to just to keep your head up and say, hey, how can we just love people before you, before you go? So there ought to be all kinds of gospel hugging happening in the atrium on the way out today. And just let's put this into practice. He says this, we're then to show hospitality. Show hospitality to one another. Notice he says, without grumbling. Oh, Peter, he knows people. He knows us. You can imagine what happens, right? So in, in that day, hospitality was so important because travelers would come through and the places that they would stay wouldn't be safe or would be immoral, and so people would open up their homes. You can imagine the pastor on a particular Lord's Day standing up and say, hey, we have brother so-and-so from Pontus. He's on his way to Cappadocia, and he needs a place to stay tonight. I need a couple folks to raise their hand and to take people in. And you can imagine people are heads down, and no, he did And the husband elbows his wife, and we should open our home. And she's like, the house is a mess. I can't do it. And, and you know, the last time they stayed was three weeks, and it was so annoying, you know? And so you want well, to be sure that this grumbling spirit doesn't happen. And in today's culture, it shows up that some needy person sends you a text, and you're like, for real? Again? Well, they call you on your voice and in your phone, and you're like, you know, do, 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 and you're like, praise God for voicemail, you know, and you're just you're, you're you're pushing them off because of this grumbling spirit. And the idea is that we love one another enough that we're going to care for one another, that we're going to share our resources, our homes, our lives, our time, because the playbook for the gospel in the community is we're going to think in the mindset of Christ, we're going to put off the things that used to characterize our former life, and we're going to create an environment, a culture that just is just pregnant with the glory of God. It's the flavoring that comes out. He goes on and he says, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as the one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. The other characteristic of the church is that God gives people and with those people come gifts. I mean, I'm looking out at a crowd of people and thinking of the thousands of gifts that are just in this room alone. And the reality is God's given you those gifts and those gifts need to be used. Whether inside the church or outside the church, you have a responsibility to use those gifts. And one of the ways that God leads the church is by giving him people who have giftedness. And I can tell you story after story of how God has led this church throughout its three decades of ministry because there were particular people who had a particular burden and God used their giftedness and used it in a marvelous way. In fact, part of the reason why we start these campuses is at Castleton last week, so awesome to see people using their gifts in entirely new ways. People who in some cases were kind of in the shadows because of both the size, the scale, and any number of reasons, and now are in the front lines getting involved in using their gifts, and it's remarkable what it does for their soul. Some of you, the reason that your soul is flagging is because there's no output in terms of the giftedness that God's given you. In fact, the text goes on and it says, in order, or rather, by the strength that God supplies, meaning that God supplies strength through you to be able to help someone else. You have a story. God's done something in your life, and there are other people who are in the middle of it, and somehow that story needs to connect with their life so you could help encourage and support them. That the church of Jesus Christ is a, a body whereby people are using their gifts and using them in a way that benefits one another. You see the vision that Peter has here of the church, what the playbook is, that we're thinking in a Christ-like way, we're putting away the things that we used to be involved in, we're creating a countercultural community marked by love, marked by hospitality, marked by other-centeredness, and then the conclusion is this, that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. 
that the aroma that flows out of College Park Church is this beautiful aroma of God-glorifying service and love and hospitality, this attractional community such that people in the world look at the relationships among us and even the environment and the culture on Sunday morning as we gather and people say, what is so different about that culture? And the answer is, it's because we are redeemed people and we've met Jesus. And the text concludes, to him, to Jesus, belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So, brothers and sisters, we want to see this in each other. We want to see this in our church. We want to see this in our city. We want to let the gospel do its work. We want the gospel to do its work in you. We want the gospel to do its work in us. We want the gospel to do its work in our city. We want the gospel to do its work around the world. Because God has a playbook, a playbook for our church, a playbook for you, and it involves thinking and repenting and doing. May God help us to be the kind of people who get that and then make that work, even just a few minutes from now. Let's pray together. Father, help us to not just hear the word but now also to respond. And in these three categories of thinking and stopping and doing, would you just apply your word to us by your spirit like only you can do? Thank you that you are able to give strength to those who are weary. You're able to give new levels of repentance to those who need to turn, and you're able to empower new steps of obedience by people who are in the margins. And church, while your heads are bowed and eyes closed, can I just ask you to take a definitive step this morning in regards to this text? I'm gonna ask you in a moment just to raise your hand, just between you, me, and the Lord, regarding these three categories. For you to consider, how many of us need to grow in our thinking? How's your attitude? How many of us need to grow in our repenting? What do you need to stop? And how many of us need to grow in our doing? What actions do we need to take? And could you just be honest before the Lord this morning and say, Mark, as as I've heard the word today, I need some changes in my thinking. I need a Christ-like mindset. I need to be armed with Christ-likeness. And we just put your hand up and then put it down, just between you and the Lord, and say, yep, that's me. That's where it applies, good all over, yep. Not taking names, just, I want you to respond. Secondly, maybe you'd say, there's stuff in my life just gotta stop. Like, repentance needs to be more closely applied. And you would just have the courage to put your hand up, put it down, and say, that's, that's my step. Yep, good, all over. Repentance, been there, done that, why am I messing around, come on. Good. And then finally, sit in the margins. I'm not sure I'm, I'm either known or I know people. I don't, I don't, not very hospitable, not all that loving. Have some gifts that aren't being used. That's where the Lord spoke to me. Would you just put your hand up and put it down? Need to find ways to express my gifts. Good. This is an awesome to know that the Lord knows all of this. Nothing that you've raised your hand about was the Lord surprised about today. And yet by his grace and his mercy, he brought you here in order to help you see that more clearly. So God, now apply your grace to us as we 
go now into the world as we engage with one another in conversation. Help us to be armed with Christ's likeness. Help us to put off the old deeds and to be the kind of people who live for your glory and your glory alone. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.